Well, good morning, everybody. Hope that you're doing well. Your hearts are encouraged. And for those of you who are on the Cornerstone Facebook page, you'll notice that one of the things that I'm starting to do is to post uh, the passage that's going to be preached on as well as the sermon title. I hope that that's an encouragement to you. Um, I always appreciate as much advance notice as I can possibly get um, what's going to be taught so that um, I can prepare my heart to receive it. And it is certainly an intriguing title this week called The Torture of Unforgiveness. And the word torture is considered by many a word that is reserved for extremists or perhaps connected to prisoners of war who have been captured and then tortured to get information. Here's an abbreviated list of some words that are also associated with the word torture. Agony, horror, misery, murder, severity, suffering, nightmares, torment, pain, hell, affliction. According to Merriam-Webster, torture is defined this way. The act of causing severe physical or emotional pain as a form of punishment or as a way to force someone to do or say something. And torture is a word that should make us cringe. It's a word that we've just seen takes many English words to describe and reflect really what it is. Another aspect of torture that I've yet to mention is the spiritual aspect. And the Bible believe it or not, does have something to say about torture. Hell, for example, is described as being a very real place. And throughout uh, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus described it for us this way. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Later, he adds the description calling it a place of darkness with the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The book of Revelation shares that hell is the eternal lake of fire and brimstone. And it exists with unending torment for those who are in that place. There is, however, another place of torture that the Bible speaks of. A place that every person in this room is tempted to visit. Every single one of us. Its chamber is invisible to the naked eye, yet it is a very real place. It is the place of unforgiveness. It is the place of withholding forgiveness from another person. Our study today will actually talk about the torture that we can all be subject to. And believe me when I share this, it does not discriminate against anyone. Some have been held hostage for years and subjected to repeated torture, not knowing how they can possibly escape. And then some have escaped only to find themselves back in captivity again. And God's Word gives us clear instruction on how we can stay free from its grip. And if you desire to stay free from the place of torture, and if you would like to have a true an accurate view of biblical forgiveness, then I want you to open your Bible right now to Matthew chapter 18. 
And let's read God's perfect and sufficient word together. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. And here is what the Lord has for us. Then Peter came to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him ten thousand talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and he began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, They were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. The title of today's message is The Torture of Unforgiveness. And to get us started, I'd like to propose a question and then answer it. And by answering it, I think it will paint a clear picture for us on what biblical forgiveness looks like. And the question is already in your notes, and it's this. How does God offer forgiveness? We're going to look at the context of the passage that we've just read, and that's going to help us out. The Apostle Peter comes to the Lord asking him this question about forgiveness, and it's preceded by verses 15 through 20, which is Jesus' instruction to us all on how to deal with an offended brother. And so Peter comes to the Lord asking the question about forgiveness. It also is a passage that maps out the steps of church discipline when dealing with an unrepentant sinner. And Jesus' clear instructions are certainly a blessing whenever we should come into a situation when we're dealing with somebody whose heart simply won't repent. And so I want to talk to you just a moment about church discipline. I'm going to give you a memory key. Are you ready? A memory key so that you can remember the the first three steps of a four-step discipline process. The the last step is putting them out. And and that's the, the, the goal of 
of discipline is restoration. But I want to give you a memory key. And nobody's nodding in agreement that their heads are... Are you ready for a memory key? Are you ready? Three words. Me, we, publicly. Okay? You ready for that? Me, we, publicly. Me, according to Matthew 18.15, as someone sins against me and I suffer a fracture or a breach in our relationship, then I have a spiritual responsibility to go to that person in private. If the person listens and repents, well, the Scripture even shares. I have won my brother. Okay? That's me. That's the responsibility that we have. Then there's we. If the person does not listen or repent, then according to Matthew 18.16, I need to take one or two people with me so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. This is the second step. And if the person listens and repents, then we have won our brother and sister back. If not, the degree of seriousness begins to escalate here to the point where a third step is involved. Me, we, then publicly. Publicly means calling the church and its members to rally around the unrepentant sinner. In Matthew 18, 17 says this, if that person refuses to listen to me and the others that I brought as witnesses, then I am to tell it to the church, and if the person refuses to listen even to the church, let him, to be, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And basically, what this passage is teaching is that this person is proving themselves to be an unbeliever. And my reason for sharing this is so that we can see the really close, personal, intimate relationship between our repentance and forgiveness, right? They are very, very closely connected. And believe it or not, church discipline takes place all the time, right? It very rarely goes beyond the first or second step, but it happens throughout every week in every church. So this is the immediate context of our forgiveness passage. And Peter comes up to the Lord, and we know he's typically the spokesman, right, for the apostles. And he comes up, and his question's really prompted by aberrant teaching from Jewish tradition. In the Jewish tradition of the day, and they cited examples from the book of Amos, Amos that they thought that it was godly or righteous to forgive a person and limit forgiveness to three times. And so Peter comes up to the Lord with his chest sticking out, and he comes to ask the question and says, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother's sin against me? And what does he say? Up to seven times? Lord, how about seven times? Double plus one. Okay? Here we go, Lord. Of course, our Lord had to graciously shepherd Peter, and Jesus answers in verse 22 saying, I do not say to you up to seven times, but I say up to 70 times seven. And so Peter was, and I would have been, I'm I'm a total Peter, just blah. And I would have been, you know, right there, and I would have been doing the math. And I would eventually came up with 490 and say 490 times. Is that right, Lord? And we all know that the Lord was trying to share that there was no limit. He wanted us to see that there was no limit on our forgiveness when somebody comes and seeks forgiveness 
with a heart that is truly repentant. And so to help the disciples, especially Peter, the Lord goes on to tell this amazing parable. Now, to save time and to cut to the chase, I'm going to do something different here. I want to put us inside the parable. We, this, this is the Lord instructing us okay, in this passage. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. And since the slave in this parable is a believer, my reading will be altered slightly to help us see the point. Okay? We're answering our first question. How does God offer forgiveness? And in the first five verses, we will see that God offers forgiveness by his example. Okay? God offers forgiveness by his example. Verse 23, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, I, I owed him 10,000 talents. I owed him an impossible debt. And by modern terms, what was being shared here was about $2.5 million. And frankly, we live in a time right now where there's so much money that $2.5 million doesn't even seem like a whole lot. So let's make millions, billions. How's that, okay? Billions of dollars. And, he was, and I was brought to him. But since I did not have the means to repay, my Lord commanded me to be sold along with my wife and children and all that I had in repayment to be made. So I fell to the ground. And I prostrated myself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay everything. And my Lord felt compassion. And he released me and forgave me the debt. And here, God allows us to see straight into his heart. And we know the answer to the question, did the slave deserve forgiveness? No, he didn't, and nor do we. And God holds sinners, each responsible for their debts. And nobody, nobody is deserving. Nobody. We're all responsible for our debt as sinners. But verse 27 says this, and my Lord felt compassion. And the Greek word here, it can also be translated felt sympathy for or felt pity for. And God's heartbeat is on display. And I want you to see this because it is so beautiful. The word's only used three other times in the New Testament. And if you'll turn just a couple chapters to Matthew chapter 20, In verse 30, you'll get to see its use a second time. And here two blind men are sitting by the road and they're hearing that Jesus was passing by and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. Verse 34, moved with compassion. It's the exact same word. Moved with compassion. Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. Same scenario in Mark 1 verses 40 and 41 a leper comes to Jesus beseeching him and falling on his knees before him saying if you are willing 
you can make me clean. Verse 41, filled with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. This is the heartbeat of God. He offers forgiveness to us by His example. Only a compassionate and divinely inspired heart can offer genuine forgiveness. And there's been some debate on whether the people who were coming were just seeking miracles, but I think there's more evidence in a lot of passages in Scripture that were people that the Lord was calling to Himself because they recognized the reality of who Jesus was, right? We even see evidence of that with the thief on the cross right before when the Lord says, today, today, you, my friend, will be with me in paradise. But forgiveness is not natural to man. And 17th century uh, poet Alexander Pope couldn't have been more correct when writing, to err is human, to forgive is divine. If I could spiritually alter this quote just slightly, uh, or slightly, I would say, to sin is human. To sin is human. To forgive is divine. How does God offer forgiveness? Well, back to Matthew 18, 27. God offers forgiveness by His example, and if we continue reading, we will see our next point. Verse 27, And the Lord of that slave felt compassion, was filled with compassion, and released him, and forgave him the debt. God offers forgiveness by choice, is our second point. Forgiveness is a divinely inspired choice. God freely chooses to forgive a repentant sinner. And this is critical to see. Does God forgive everybody on this planet? Yes or no? No, He doesn't. It's a teaching called universalism. And it's absolutely unbiblical. God forgives repentant sinners who cry out to Him, just like this slave did in the parable, just like the publican and the Pharisee in Luke 18, the tax collector that beats on his chest and says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's a decision by God to forgive. His choice is fueled by His mercy and compassion, as we saw earlier. And the Lord, in verse 27, releases this slave. And this is symbolic as we are released from the debt of our sins through the gospel, we're completely freed. The debt of our sin is canceled. And I thought it would be good for us to consider some passages that spell out God's choice and what it means. We can consider, for example, Jeremiah chapter 31 and verses 33 and 34, which is a picture of, of the new covenant and the Old Testament. And this is how God describes His forgiveness According to verse 34, he says, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And this is powerful. God makes a choice willingly to forgive our sin no more. Remember it no more. He, he makes a choice in His forgiveness to remember our sin no more. He doesn't forget it. We, we understand this, and I'm, ta- I'm talking to a well-taught group. We understand God's uh, omniscience. We understand that He's all-knowing. It's impossible for Him to forget. He chooses willingly 
to remember it no more. And if you're a believer, I don't care how much you think that your sin was so heinous from your past. Or it might even be a current struggle that you're facing today. God God chooses willingly to remember it no more. And this is such an encouraging truth to share when we evangelize the lost. So oftentimes, people are convinced in their mind that they're, 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 they're so wretched, they're, they're, they're so, their life is so upside down, there's no way that God or Jesus or the Gospel can turn it right side up. But we know differently. doesn't matter if you have committed murder. Two of the greatest men in Scripture were, were murderers, right? Moses in the Old Testament killed an Egyptian man. Paul responsible for the murder of early Christians. doesn't matter if it was a life of prostitution or drug addiction. doesn't matter if you were guilty of embezzling millions and millions of dollars. It doesn't matter if you were a habitual liar. It simply does not matter. And it's so beautiful even to think about the Lord's words when He said, when He was describing a person who had been forgiven much, What's he say? They love much. A person who has been forgiven much loves much. And in Isaiah 44.22, God says to Israel, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This verse is reflected in really the experience that we um, have when we're flying in an airplane. And we're ascending and descending, and it's always such a pretty cool experience when you start to go up high enough that you you enter into cloud cover, right? And And you're looking down at the earth, and everyone's always, I think, a little bit... I love flying because I think at some point everybody on the plane thinks about God, or they think about the reality of what if this plane goes down. I, I love that part about flying. I do. And, and as, you're, as we're rising up through, through, through the cloud, well, one minute we see the earth, which could be a picture of our sin. And this is what that verse is saying. When we come up and we come into the cloud cover, that's what Isaiah 44:22 God is saying, I wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud. Yeah, it's there, but I'm choosing willingly to see it no more. And God's choice to forgive is attached with His promise to believers that when we have been forgiven, that we're sealed by the Holy Spirit with His forgiveness, according to Ephesians 1.13. He's not ever going to unforgive us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And we have all those passages to cling to. The word sealed in Ephesians 1.13 some of you um, probably already know this. Those who have studied the verse know that just like farmers who, who branded their cattle to take ownership of them, right? That's, that's the idea of us being marked as believers. When We've been sealed. We've been marked with a hot iron. And God seals us or brands us spiritually with His forgiveness. And it's so beautiful. When God offers forgiveness, He literally says, you, you, 
You are mine. You are mine. How does God offer forgiveness? God offers forgiveness by his compassionate example. God offers forgiveness by his gracious choice. And third, God offers forgiveness by mandate. Back to the parable in, in Matthew 18. God offers forgiveness by mandate. Verse 28 says this, But I went out, and I found one of my fellow slaves who owed me a hundred denarii. And I seized him. And I began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So my fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with me, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But I was unwilling, and I went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when my fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved, and they came and reported to our Lord all that had happened. And then summoning me, my Lord said to me, You wicked slave. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And my Lord moved with anger, with anger, handed me over to the torturers until I should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is where I was this week in this message. This is where my heart was camped out in this passage. And yes, this passage is directed to believers, and we need to pay close attention here. Some people think that because the, of the severity of this passage, that it couldn't be, possibly be talking to believers. But a closer look will prove, prove otherwise. Jesus introduces the parable by specifically stating that it's about the kingdom of heaven. And he's referencing those who have true citizenship, which can only be believers. And not only that, but in verse 23, it says, for this reason, which is a direct response to Peter's question about forgiving a brother in verse 21, which in turn was a response to his teaching about the discipline of the church. And, and this, I'm giving this to you way too fast. But at the top of, the, <laughs> at the top of this list is how the, Lord, how, how the chapter starts out, little ones, who believe in him. This the context reveals that the Lord Jesus Christ is clearly talking to believers. This powerful parable enforces not only the need for us as believers to forgive each other, but it also serves as a warning of the chastening that will come if we should withhold forgiveness from someone. How does God offer Forgiveness. He offers it to us by giving us a mandate. And what does the mandate entail? Of course, it entails looking closely at his example. Of course, it entails looking at his gracious and merciful choice of us. Then comes the mandate that lets us know that forgiveness is not optional for a believer. Forgiveness is not optional. It's a mandate. Redundantly speaking, it's a mandatory mandate. Okay? We must forgive. If you'll turn back to Matthew chapter 6 and peek at verses 14 and 15, this is what it has to say in Matthew six fourteen and 15. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, 
your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. The mark of a true believer is a heart of forgiveness. A converted heart is a forgiving heart. And our obedience to forgive is much like our obedience in other areas of our lives, right? It validates or it gives testimony that our heart has been changed. That our, that our heart is focused on God. And the work of forgiveness in our lives, it doesn't earn our salvation, but it does validate it. Faith without evidence or works is dead, just as James 2.20 teaches us. True forgiveness is only possible for believers as we're fueled by God's example, by His choice to forgive us, right? And then when we focus on His mandate for us to forgive. And option number two doesn't look so good. It really doesn't. The only other option is to be incarcerated in the torture chamber of unforgiveness. And it's the title of today's message and forgiveness is the door that opens is the key that opens up the door to that chamber to get out right that is what allows us a way uh, uh, allows us to to be relieved from the torture of bitterness and resentment it's bondage it's bondage and repentance and forgiveness is a blessing. You know, someone once said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and discover the prisoner was you. So true. So true. And I want this mandate to be settled in our minds. And let's consider just a couple passages. You can jot these down for your notes. Colossians 3.13 and Ephesians 4.32 say this, bearing with one another, Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another and forgiving each other Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It's so interesting to me that both of these passages are found in um, context where repentance is what is being emphasized here. Well, let's get back to the passage in Matthew 18 to see what happens if we withhold forgiveness. Verse 32, Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Jesus closes out this teaching time speaking straightforward and directly to his disciples and to us today. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. This is the torture that awaits anyone who is unwilling to forgive. At the beginning of the sermon, we considered the definition that Webster provided for us, but I think, spiritually speaking, there's a much better definition for us. You know how I define torture? 
Torture is the place where forgiveness does not exist. Torture is the place where forgiveness does not exist. And think about it for a moment. Hell is is an eternal place of torment. Does forgiveness exist there? Can forgiveness, will forgiveness exist there? It won't, right? It's fixed. It's set. It defines hell. And this should instill fear in our hearts that we can experience hell while on earth if we withhold forgiveness. Now I want to make sure that we, we, and this is for my own heart, this is for all of our hearts, that we're not withholding forgiveness from anyone. From anyone. Because we will suffer from the righteous indignation from God the Father and be handed over to that bitterness, to that resentment. You talk to any Christian who has clung to unforgiveness for any amount of time, and they'll, they'll tell you what it is, right? We, we, for those who have walked that line, it is absolutely torture. I, God reveals it right here for us to see. And how long will the torture last? Until you pay back, till you and I pay back God what we owe. And what does a Christian owe? We owe him our obedience. We owe him our willingness to forgive. Well, we've officially answered our question, how does God offer forgiveness? God offers forgiveness by his example. Right? God offers forgiveness by choice. God offers forgiveness by providing us a mandate. Physical torture. The infliction of severe physical or psychological pain upon an individual to extract information or a confession. Or as an illicit extrajudicial punishment. Need Brian Kang to help me understand what this is all about. Is prohibited by international law and is illegal in most countries. None of us would, in our right minds, willingly subject ourselves to torture. We wouldn't do that. We just, it wouldn't make any sense. But you want to know what? Spiritually, we can be very tempted to do that very thing. We can be very tempted to do that very thing. And what's ironic is that our sinful flesh, influenced by the culture, volunteers us on a regular basis to spiritually torture ourselves more than we realize. And there's a, there's a reason why this happens. And this is where I want to spend some time helping us see that the world and the deceptive nature of our hearts, and when we don't have an accurate view of biblical forgiveness, we can, not intentionally, right? We can um, accidentally or with an uninformed mind find ourselves in the torture of unforgiveness because we've allowed lines of communication to get blurred. We haven't seen clearly what the Bible would have us, have us teach. And this world is always trying, it's spiritual warfare, nonstop. It's always trying to give us its examples on how to deal with things in relationships. Like, maybe you've heard this one before, to forgive is to forget. 
Come on. That's number one seller in our culture. Or how about saying you are sorry is the same thing as seeking forgiveness? Worse yet, admitting you were wrong means you are seeking forgiveness. Or in order to be fully forgiven, I must feel forgiven or have correct feelings about forgiveness. In order to be forgiven, I must first forgive myself. This is just the tip of the iceberg of what the world suggests. And it confirms just how truly twisted the counsel of the the world is. And if we're not careful, this will masquerade and cover up forgiveness. Especially if we adopt any of this council and we could be headed straight into the spiritual torture chamber of unforgiveness forgiveness forgiving is not forgetting it's not it's not as we've already learned it's a willing and intentional choice not to remember the offense anymore and forgiveness is not a feeling either it's a promise what are you promising when you choose to forgive someone and we've, I've mentioned these before in a previous sermon, you're promising three things in biblical forgiveness. And so if you don't remember what these three things are right now, just by me prompting you, you may want to write them down so you can, you can make sure that you, you grab a hold of these. When we offer biblical forgiveness to somebody, we're going to do three things. We're not going to bring the offense up to them anymore. We're not going to bring the offense up again to others. And we're not going to bring the offense up to ourselves. It's gone. It's gone. The debt has been released. And we're choosing it. We're choosing to remember it no more. And it's like a gag order in a court of law, right? We're no longer permitted to talk about it. But you know what happens? We can be just like that wicked slave, can't we? We can be tempted to hold on to those hurtful offenses. And, and some of them are severe. And some of them are very deep cuts. Come on, Pastor John. You mean this person that I've already forgived, I've already forgiven for, for the, the same offense before, that did it to me again a second time? Yeah. This person that is coming to me with all the baggage that they bring to me every time they come with one more thing or one more excuse. And it's hard, especially when somebody does repeat the same offense a second time or multiple times. And yet these are opportunities that God ordains so that we could grow in Christ's likeness. And this is what should distinguish us from the Antichrist world, right? We have the capacity. We are enabled to extend true forgiveness. We're not going to make things right with somebody and then continue to talk about it like the world does. We're not going to do that. Why is it that as Christians, we... We, we forget about <laughs> um, all the sins, if you think about this, all the sins that we have committed. We, we forget about that so easily. And yet when somebody has sinned against us just uh, a couple of times, and we just cling to it, 
And we're unwilling to let it go. What does God have to say when we do this? Well, we just saw it in Matthew 18.32. Unforgiveness walks us into the torture chamber every single time. And so to also assist us um, in staying free of the torture chamber, I thought it would be good for us just to clarify a couple terms. First, I want to distinguish between offering an apology versus seeking forgiveness. And second, I want to briefly distinguish between forgiveness and reconciliation. Okay? What does the Bible teach us about apologies? Nothing. Doesn't. Doesn't offer it. It actually comes from a Greek word, apologia, which is actually used um, 1 Peter 3.15, when it talks about making a defense. And the original concept of an apology is actually in, in the, it has pagan roots. It actually was a defense that was used in a judicial system, in the court of law. And eventually it turned into a milder form, and apologizing evolved into the expression, I'm sorry. Or in other words, you feel bad about what happened, but more often than not, there's no clear admission of guilt. And this is really dangerous because the apologies, they short-circuit the whole process. They short-circuit the confession and repentance process necessary in biblical forgiveness. And you know what apologies do? They put the offender in the driver's seat. Think about it. I'm sorry. Go tell your brother or your sister, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, we see that, had that experience. I grew up, that's all about you. It was like, I'm, you know, I'm like still beating. <laughs> you know, the brother comes over. I'm sorry. <laughs> and he's off, still dealing with the aftermath, you know. It's like, ah! It puts them in the driver's seat. It's completely different than the expression, will you forgive me for this? Then that, that, that puts the person who's been offended in the driver's seat. And I want you to see some of these contrasts between apologies and forgiveness that reflect the radical difference between the two. Apologies dump feelings. Forgiveness deals with faults. Apologies desire relief. Forgiveness desires reconciliation. Apologies are self-focused. Forgiveness is others-focused. Or we could say God-focused. Apologies seek a conclusion Forgiveness seeks a commitment. Apologies cover up. Forgiveness confesses up. Now, before we move on, let me say that there's a place in our culture for apologies. If you are at Albertsons and you're pushing your grocery cart and you accidentally bump into somebody's car, right? By all means, apologize. But if you're angry because they crammed you in your parking spot and you can barely get the shopping cart through and you run your shopping cart, you may need to seek their forgiveness, okay? That's, that's the difference. And what we're talking about, apologies deal with accidents. Forgiveness deals with sin. That's really what we're talking about. So it, this, will, this will help um, as we, we think about this in, in the home. Um, there, there are going to be those accidents that happen, right? But then there are going to be um, times where we sin. Don't apologize to someone when you should be seeking their forgiveness. The difference between which one we use 
you know, again, I'm not splitting hairs here. I'm just trying to help us see it's whether we've sinned or not. And we want to take our sins seriously before the Lord. We don't want to apologize for it. And there's a phrase that I would encourage every single one of us as believers to be very comfortable using on a regular basis. And it's this. Will you forgive me for? Will you forgive me for this? Those words. And I, can, I, can I just crawl into your kitchen just a little bit? Can I just come in? I'm not trying to step on toes here. But I want you to think about this. When is the last time those words came out of your mouth? We sin all the time. We sin all the time. Will you forgive me for this? And men, I want to challenge you. And it's not that I have, I'm not going after you guys to to, to pick, pick on the guys. But we do have a responsibility as the head of our households, as the spiritual leaders in our homes, to set the tones and to lead by example in this regard. Will you forgive me for? And when we respond with an angry tone with our kids, when we respond in a selfish manner with them, that we would model forgiveness for them as well. Will you forgive dad for this? Will you forgive me for? And remember, our unforgiving flesh is always waging war against the forgiving spirit, is it not? There's always this battle that's going to be going on. And God wants Christians to be great forgivers. And this is how God is glorified through us. And this is how unity in the church is maintained. And I understand that forgiveness is a very sensitive topic for many relationships. And I don't want to appear insensitive. And you know what, if time, we could spend hours talking about this, and I'm thankful that we have care groups to do that very thing. You would have opportunity in your care groups. And we had some Ministry One training for your care group leaders. And they actually even have a little note sheet um, related to this week's message that will guide some time if um, you have an opportunity later this week to talk about it. Well, a couple weeks ago when I was preaching on the unchanging resolution in 1 Peter 4, we came across a, a verse in 1 Peter 4, 8. Um, that shared with us that love covers a multitude of sins. You remember that? Love covers a multitude of sins. But sometimes sin goes so far that there's a breach, there's a fracture in the relationship. Then we're only given one other option, and that's Matthew 18, 15. We have a responsibility to go to that person. Okay? We have the responsibility not to send somebody else, not to pass on a third-party complaint, but we need to go specifically to that person. If there's a breach or a fracture in the relationship, that's where the second option comes into play. Love's not going to cover it, right? There's a breakdown here. And if you need some help on how to determine whether there's a fracture or not, let me give this to you. If you're going to a family reunion or a family gathering, okay, and you don't want to go talk to that person, and you have no desire to talk to that person on the other side of the room, there's a fracture. There's a fracture there, my friend. And, and, and that's the sign. That's when, when you want to avoid them. And the same thing can happen in the church, right? If there's a, a breakdown or there's a, a fracture, you may not you may be, oh, they're coming this way. I'm going that way, right? God wants us to deal with it. And forgiveness is the avenue that takes us there. 
And that's when the, the three things, and then once it gets worked out, the three rules apply. You know, um, maybe you've had to seek the forgiveness, and will you forgive me for this? And that when they release you for the debt, what they're saying is that they're not going to talk about it again. You're not going to talk about it. Not going to be brought up to you. Not going to be brought up to others. All right, one final clarification before we close. And I want to briefly mention reconciliation. And as believers, we're reconciled to God through forgiveness. As believers, we also reconcile with each other through forgiveness. I want you to hear this. Reconciliation is the goal of forgiveness. It is not the same as forgiveness. Reconciliation takes place after the offended party reveals the fault to the offender or the offender takes the initiative on their own to go share and then seeks forgiveness from the offended party. And then after forgiveness is granted, then the process of reconciliation can be initiated. Okay? Reconciliation. And there's a, this is a big deal. It was a big deal for me in seminary too because there's this whole thing talking about transactional forgiveness and that the transaction can't actually take place and it really blurs the line on forgiveness. And the, the, the reality is that the battle starts right here is that there's, they're confusing forgiveness with reconciliation, right? And so we want to make sure that we understand it correctly. You know, forgiveness is the immediate release of the debt that enables reconciliation to follow. And all offenses are not created equal. And I, I, I mentioned this earlier. Sometimes the cut, the wound can be so deep, right? And, and you really said something hurtful to somebody, okay? You, you really said something hurtful. And it hurt. And it cut them deeply, okay? And you can go and ask that person, will you forgive me for what I said to you? Will you forgive me for speaking harshly and saying what I said. And the person, spirit-led, says, you know what? I forgive you. And you make up. Now, that doesn't mean that that relationship is reconciled. It doesn't. It just means that now it can be launched towards the process of reconciliation. And so that means that from that point forward, you might have to apply the balm more than one time. It's like if it's a, it's a minor offense, it's a paper cut, right? It's like, you know what, we can, it's going to heal in a couple days. It's going to be fine. You get stabbed in the gut with a sword, right? That's a deep wound. That, that's going to take some time for reconciliation. And you might have to apply the balm of grace and humility more than one time. You're going to have to go to them and, and hug that person and bring encouraging words back to them before that relationship. And it may take time. In, in counseling situations, Sometimes it can take weeks, months, and depending on the offense and the degree of the cut, years. So we want to see that with clarity. We want to see it with clarity. The greater the offense, the greater effort that might be required for complete reconciliation to be reached. God will help believers through His divine assistance applying humility and grace to the needs that we have, and even allow broken relationships to be stronger than they ever were before. That is the power of forgiveness. And that is powerful. 
because it comes straight from the all-powerful one. It is divine. Well, I wanted to share this uh, story with you that really captures the gospel releasing someone from the torture chamber of unforgiveness. And this is what it says. Mitsuo Fachida was a staunch military pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor. He was a proud Japanese warmonger who admired Adolf Hitler. He wore his hair like Hitler and sported the same little mustache. Fuchida took part in the Battle of Midway, the Marianas Turkey shoot at the Leyte Gulf, and other major engagements of the Pacific War. He stood on the deck of the USS Missouri at the surrender ceremonies after being captured. Though defeated, he was pleased with his behavior as a pilot. But after the war, he became disillusioned. He was surprised to learn that Japanese POWs were treated humanely. He also learned of a Christian woman who ministered to the Japanese prisoners. Her parents were missionaries to Japan, but had been beheaded by his countrymen. This woman had forgiven the Japanese perpetrators and even met the needs of Japanese captured soldiers. Such love led him to the Bible. He eventually became a Christian and later an evangelist. Before his death in 1976, he led many to Christ through his preaching in Japan and the United States. Transformation started when one woman chose to forgive like Christ. A wise man once said, we are never more like God than when we forgive. And may God allow our church to be a forgiving church. And may we never be held captive by the torture, by the torture of unforgiveness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that has done its work again. It has put you on display as the faithful one. Father, it has allowed your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our example, to again serve us so well. Thank you for these words that he shared with the disciples. And you knew, you knew, Father, at that point in time when this gospel was being recorded that those words would land on our ears this day. This day that you marked. And Father, you want us to live in the freedom of forgiveness. It's your desire for us to put you on display in our lives so that we would not be held in the grip or the bondage of withholding forgiveness from another person. And Father, it's hard. It's so hard. And sometimes the hurts are so real. We struggle 
And oftentimes our struggle is due to the reality that we're wrestling with things from our own perspective. And we're not viewing them from your perspective. And we thank you for your word and a message from the Lord Jesus Christ that would allow us to spiritually refocus our eyes. And Lord, this is so perfect as we prepare our hearts for communion that we would focus on the reality of whether or not there's someone that we need to forgive. Are we tainting our testimony? Are we able to sing the song that we sang earlier about the word of our testimony? Are we honoring you with our desire to work through the sin and the challenges that come into relationships? Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to learn and to grow and the reality that you're a long-suffering God and that you allow your fuse to burn slowly through your long-suffering and that you don't respond to us in the moment when we sin. You give us time to see the error of our ways. You allow us to have your word. You allow us to have the Holy Spirit that convicts us of sin and righteousness and leads us to the path of repentance. And so, Father, as we prepare our hearts right now to celebrate communion, would you help those of us in the room that are harboring unforgiveness or are suffering from a broken relationship to let this cup pass from us this day, that we could make it right, that we could be restored and that unity could be maintained, our fellowship with you and our fellowship with one to another, so that we can enjoy this wonderful celebration for what it is. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.